0: Hello and welcome to the Race IndyCar podcast. My name is Jack Benyon, and this week the pod is corkscrew tastic as I welcome my co-host JR Hildebrand. JR, you were back in the paddock at the week- weekend briefly. Um, I imagine the vibe was quite tense in the penultimate round of the season, where people are fighting for their seats and, and fighting for their championships. Yeah, it's always
1: a bit of a weird time to be in the paddock. I mean, I can say this from from being a driver in the paddock at the you know at the time and and just being around that you know, at this point, you only got a handful of people who are in championship contention. So for those guys, it's, it's very like just session to session, lap to lap, you know, they're totally, totally dialed in for everybody else at this point, you know, particularly in the IndyCar series, there's not much, you know, finishing sixth versus 10th or whatever in the, in the final standings, isn't that big of a deal. So it's a lot of, um, you know, I think thinking ahead to what comes next for teams and drivers. And obviously we're, we're preparing for quite a bit of action here in the, in the off season. So you can definitely get a feeling for a a lot of, a lot of people holding their cards close to their chest in terms of what they think is going to happen. And I I think at the end of the day, still quite a bit of uncertainty, um, at least in terms of drivers and and crews and stuff in terms of exactly how it's all going to play out and where guys are going to end up. So I think there'll be, you know, a couple of the early dominoes, we have a pretty good idea of, but how that then affects, everything else still seems, still seems fairly up in the air. So it was interesting, you know, just bouncing around, talking to some of the team owners and, um, you know, definitely even, I think being at Laguna, even just as, as far as a race goes, nobody had any idea what to expect before the first practice (laughs) session going into the, going into the weekend. And it's, it's funny that it's, it's actually quite a similar rundown to the last race at Laguna Seca, but just over the course of the weekend, no no you know a lot of guys attested there earlier in the year the everybody that i talked to was basically throwing that completely out the window like it didn't mean anything to them at this point especially after a lot of teams thought they were going to be really good at portland and then weren't and so um yeah just a, a pretty wild weekend in terms of what was going on on track let alone anything that's behind the scenes
0: yeah quite interesting i guess we had to uh you know, you have the people who are massively under pressure for for next year or to fight for the championship. And then you've got the people who totally have no pressure on them and there's not really much in between. So it's quite an unusual situation as we get towards the end of the year. And yeah, like you said, I think, um, I think even as you mentioned people not knowing what was going on until practice I think some people didn't know what was going to happen after practice as well (laughs) No practice
1: (laughs) practice didn't help at all actually (laughs) like I think there were there were a bunch of a bunch of drivers and teams that I think by the end of the weekend they might as well have said like screw it we'll just line up and race like we're not gonna we're not figuring anything out one way or the other here until we actually get going which proved to be the case watching the event as well yeah
0: let's get into it shall we I'll do my quick usual rundown of what happened in the race in case people um, missed anything or, or didn't quite see the whole race or, or just need that recapping. So Colton Hurton took his third pole of the year. His average start is up to 4.1 now. That's something I like to keep banging on about this year, how impressed I've been with his qualifying average, which has been pretty phenomenal. Led early, made a mistake at the exit of turn four, opening the door at turn five when Alexander Rossi dove down the inside and edged up to Hurter, but they touched and Rossi went off. That was a really weird incident. I'm going to ask you about that later on, JR, because the it looked like his Front wheel just broke on the on the contact, and then then he was driving again. So,
1: very <laughs> sure what happened that. I've had this. I've had this happen. So we'll talk about it. In a excellent,
0: second. excellent. Yeah, wheel power also hit trouble right at the start of the race as well with an apparent sort of engine issue. Uh, which took him out of second. So that left Colton and Alex Pillow out front. But this always felt like a to win, even when Pillow closed in. Um, Herter caught a, a bit of traffic after the second round of stops, and that allowed Alex Pelot to close in. But obviously, it's so difficult to overtake when we're talking about the kind of front cars on a similar strategy. And, uh, you know, it was a bit difficult to pass and, and Alex never quite got close enough. And then Colton put a car or two of traffic between the two of them. And at that point, I think the kind of, uh, the die was cast at, at that point. Uh, it was a fairly straightforward three-stopper, although I think a lot of people didn't really know how the tyres were going to work and the, the degradation was a lot higher than a lot of people seemed to have, uh, seemed to have expected. Uh, that kind of led to the, the other big storyline in the race, Roman Grosjean, who did two really long middle stints and then the final stint um, put on a, a fresh set of soft tyres and basically blitzed his way through the field. He'd already made some incredible passes uh, on the likes of Scott Dixon at the Corkscrew, which I'm going to lobby IndyCar, it should be illegal um and a great pass around the outside of pato Award at turn four um that one was a bit more down to the fresh tires and, and pato struggling a little bit but still an incredible and audacious move to, to try that there um and the only kind of downside was his uh, big contact with jimmy johnson that probably would have uh snapped two f1 cars in half but because it because it's an IndyCar tank, they seem to uh, they seem to cope pretty well. So I think we'll start with, even though we do need to get onto the championship battle because we've only got one race left, we'll start with Colton. Uh, it's his second win in a row at Laguna, the, the two races since it's come back into the championship. Like his dad managed, two in a row. Um, also passed his dad's number of wins and sealed a 10th IndyCar manufacturer's title for Honda 25 years after its first with Ganassi and Jimmy Vazza. So I know that was the first time he's won two races at the same track, but I do feel like Colton has his favorite places. And one of the next steps for him to, to become a proper championship contender is going to be to, to start doing what we've seen Joseph Newgarden do in the, in the last few years. And that's kind of become better at those tracks where you don't necessarily, um, you know, perform to the best of your ability. What do you think about that Joe?
1: Yeah, I think it's, I think it's fair. It's early in Colton's career to, I think really judge him seriously anywhere in particular, other than these places where he just goes and stomps on everybody over the course of the weekend. So I'm I, again, impressed with it. it. in like we said earlier in the year after St. Pete, it looked like a very similar performance. Honestly, the, the way the car was working for him when they showed his in cars looked very similar to me, either uh, totally different tracks, but um, just for at places, St. Pete, you know, I guess Laguna, has sort of street course level grip. I was talking to some folks afterwards and they were saying like, it was almost like driving on a damp racetrack. Like it was that in terms of how you had to sort of address the, your, your inputs and and sensation of grip on the track and how much you were going to push the car and, and that kind of kind of stuff. It was so difficult just to place the car in the same place, corner to corner, lap to lap that, it, it just together I guess, from the outside appears like a package that's very street course, like, um, in terms of the same things that you have to think about in those kinds of places where the grips chain ever changing and, uh, the marbles offline are really bad and all that kind of stuff that I just, when they, when they went to Colton's in-car, even when he was sort of losing pace as everybody was over the course of tire stints, the car just looked the same to me, which was that it, 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 it just always looked like he had front grip and that the front of the car was sensitive, just watching his steering inputs. It wasn't front grip that like we see with Pato a lot of time, that's kind of overpowering the rear of the car. It's just a balanced, settled car that he can place the front axle where he needs to corner entry into the apex. Uh, It just looked like a nice car to drive. And that's I'm sure to say that it's just a, that it's a great car is is sort of um, oversimplifying what's going on there. A lot of why it looks that way is because of how Colton's driving it. Uh, but it's it's clear that in these places, he and his engineer Nathan O'Rourke has have managed to find this really sweet spot that allows him to just go hard, not be over the top of the car at any particular point relative to everybody else, um, and and be out there doing his thing. So. I think part of it, part of what we've seen in a few of these instances is that um, I'm really interested to see how he stacks up at Long Beach uh, next weekend, because I think he's definitely a threat there. The Andretti cars have been really good there for a long time. Um, And frankly, over the course of this year, it's hard to really pick out any particular tracks that he's seemed like he's really underperforming at. There are some places where okay, maybe he isn't dominant or doesn't seem like he's in the window of having that type of dominant pace. But, uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, he was, he was my pick at the beginning of the year as like an outside threat at the title. And I, there's nothing about the way this season has gone for him, watching him relative to his teammates. That makes me think that that was a bad choice.
0: He's, I don't know if you'll disagree with this, but I find him and garden to be in a class of two this year in the sense of, that they can turn up and just literally dominate a weekend. And, you know, I'm talking about, I know, I know Alex Polo turned up and been fastest in practice and been impressive in races and, and won races, obviously, but Polo didn't win his first pole until quite a bit later in the season. And I just think, you know, we've seen with, with Colton at like St. Petersburg and Nashville. Uh, and we saw it again this weekend that he seems him and Newgarden just seems to be in a place at the moment where they can just, you know, once it's in that window, they are very, very difficult to beat. And that is quite a scary proposition moving forward for, for the opposition. You know, I, I know those two have both had a bit of bad luck, but you, you can't have bad luck forever. And if those two can, can replicate that form next year, I think those two are going to be, you know, really pushing the front more than they have been this year.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I think that, I think basically the, they're the two guys to me that, And like I said earlier, just from watching the in cars at those events, when they, when they are in that mode, um, it's just kind of like, okay, that basically looks like, uh, that looks for that for them in the car, the way they're driving it, the way their style suits it. It just looks sort of easy to go out there and rip the lap time and the lap time, every lap during the race is good enough to pull away from everyone else. And so it's just kind of like, man, there's no reason. This was another event just watching Colton that from, from like partway through the first stint, I'm kind of sitting there watching it. Like, unless something crazy happens, he's just going to pull away from everybody and he might end up winning by like 10 or 15 seconds. Um, Cause it just, there was no reason in terms of what he was doing in the car that it looked like he couldn't. So I, yeah, I think that's a, there's a lot of other guys that are capable of extracting a lot out of the cars but it doesn't seem like, as a package deal with the team and the car and the way that it's set up and the way they get through the weekends, I, w- I would agree that Joseph and and Colton seem like the two kind of in a class of their own from that perspective.
0: Obviously, everyone wants to know about the championship, but I thought it was quite important to lead with that. The you know the fact that obviously Colton had dominated this weekend, and I think it's important to highlight that he really should be in this battle. And you know we're the ones who are poorer for him for him and Joseph not being you know closer to the to the sharp end, really, just because of how good they've been at times this year and really unfortunate how their seasons have played out. So let's go on to that aforementioned discussion about the championship. Alex Pelot took second in the race and while Pato Ward looks set to be one spot behind, he lost two spots after the last pit stops to run fifth. His interpretation was after how the car had performed at the weekend, especially in practice, it was a a miracle in quote marks uh, to finish fifth. Although he was obviously disappointed to slip 34 points behind from being 25 points behind at the previous round. So having been so close to Alex at one point to to slip those last two positions was, was really painful for for Pato, at a place where they'd had a good test and and felt like they, you know, they might have um, a, a good chance to be in contention there. So Newgarden's the other one we should mention, who's now 48 points adrift with 54 on offer. But there's basically five points for starting the race, isn't there? So he's pretty much out of it at this point, unless someone, something absolutely mad mm-hmm. happens at Long Beach, uh, which, which it could happen. We're not ruling that out, but it's just worth noting that, you know, the fact that Alex and and Pato uh, are going to get five points regardless, basically makes this very, very difficult for Joseph. Um, And yeah, I guess uh, 11th for Alex Plo will secure the title, which, you know, some people have questioned, um, you know, his street course performances this year, but he's been in, uh, he he had the problem in St. Pete. And then for two of the three other races, he's been in the top 10. So Uh, You know, I don't think it's as uh, quite as dramatic as maybe some people have made it sound in terms of 11th being difficult for him. Does um, does Polo's slight lack of form on the street courses, though, give Pato a wall to win this on merit or does Polo needs have an issue? Do you think, Joe?
1: Personally, I think Polo needs to have an issue here. Uh, And I say that in, in part because. I don't look at going into long beach necessarily as a track that I would say award is like favored to stick it on pole and run away with it. I, I certainly expect him to be fast. Um, but I think that, I think that the Andretti cars are going to show up there and be really good. There's going to be, I guess the point generally is that there's a number of drivers who can new garden included in that, um, willpower who can start taking away those extra points for pole for most laps led for, you know, leading laps during the race, all of that kind of stuff, which as soon as you lose those first couple of points, then Alex is getting like multiples of positions that he can finish further back. I mean, basically if, if Pato doesn't win the race, then it's almost like anything can happen for, for Alex. So it's, it's really not that close of a points deficit in my, in my opinion. And Alex's pace has been, plenty good enough in the previous street course events to be to be well in contention there like i I don't see him finishing outside the top 10 basically when it comes down to it so to me i I guess i I, some weird stuff is going to have to happen in my opinion for any of this to work itself out i think it was funny it's it it was interesting while i was watching the race we were watching pato during the race and it's almost like okay so he's obviously he's become known at this point for having like bad tired egg or, or car getting loose and going off over the course of the race. Laguna almost sur- suited him to a degree because it's just like, everybody's got super bad tired eggs. So the fact that he's got it like 5% more or worse than he normally does everybody else. It's such a huge Delta to the way that they typically get through these stints that I thought that was kind of, it's funny to think about like, there being this weird middle zone, like if the if everybody's got a lot of grip, Pato's going to be way at the front the whole time. If everybody's you know off the deep end, then it kind of Pato's like okay there too because it can only get so bad. Basically, um, it's these places where we've been kind of in between with hot weather where some got where some teams and drivers do keep it together like Portland and and tracks like that that uh, they particularly struggled. So I can imagine him. I, I had a race at at Texas in 2012 or something i think it was basically like the before they did all the pj1 but they took a ton of downforce off the cars to like ensure that it was not going to be a pack race and it i think five cars ended up finishing on the lead lap like it was one of those kinds of races and we were god we were just the car was just terrible like you're hanging on for dear life and ended up finishing fifth Cause it was just like, oh, well, I guess everybody, there was one car that was really good and they lapped almost everybody and everybody else sucked the entire event. So uh, I, I kind of felt for Pato there, but it was funny to watch um, in the same respect. I think basically at the end of the day, uh, you know, he's, he's where he's at because they've managed to do a great job of just stringing together, getting the best out of what they've got over the course of the year. New garden really needed to have better events, frankly, over the last two races And just didn't, you know, I think they came in with high hopes. They were, they were up there in practice sessions at Portland and at Laguna. He obviously led the first session at Laguna. Um, but you know, qualifying outside the top 15 for them in these situations, I, I know that he's super frustrated by that and they don't have a lot of answers. I don't feel like internally for exactly where some of that speed has gone in those situations. Um, and that's just put him too much on the back foot. So, um, you know, his, his situation at this stage, I think is, is like you said, pretty much out. And, and frankly, you know, Alex has had about as much bad luck as any of the, as anybody has over the course of this year. At this point, he's had a couple of, you know, they've had engines, they've had grid penalties. Um, you know, I, I think at this point I'm, I, there's, there's nothing about him winning a championship at this point that in my mind, isn't completely on merit. Uh, at this stage in the season. From my perspective, the undoubted star of the race was Roman Grosjean, who did too long since the middle of the race, like you mentioned, to give himself a fresh set of sauce at the end of the race. So he was on the alternates uh, and just was like totally playing hero ball at the end of the race for, <laughs> for at least a little while you've written a piece for the race, outlining the keys to this drive for Grosjean. So tell us about those. And then I want to jump in with kind of what I saw from his driving over the course of the race, because it was really impressive to watch.
0: Yeah, interrupt me at any point here for by, by all means but I guess it all started with qualifying where he missed out on the the second part of qualifying Q2 if you're a Formula 1 fan kind of thing uh, by 0.0027 seconds which is I think I wrote frankly ridiculous in the piece that I wrote for the race it, it genuinely is that is that is silly like to, to miss out by that much and it's, it feels like it's happened to him quite a few times this season as well where he's missed out by that much I remember Barber was 0.07 something off as well so yeah, it's been a, a bit of a theme for, for the season for those guys, but brilliant start. If you watch the start, it's it's the exact opposite of what you expect from Roman Grosjean in, in IndyCar. He kind of hangs back and assesses the situation going into turn one. It's really, really cool to watch because obviously the guys were using the outside line through turn two, it is actually called, isn't it? Which is actually turn one to normal people um, because there's just a bit more grip on the outside of the corner. It's just, just, yeah, the car just grips up better, but Roman took the inside at the start, a bit more of a kind of, what you would call a, i guess more of a natural racing line if you're just talking about any circuit as opposed to laguna so um and yeah just picked off two or three cars on the inside and actually managed to get a really good exit as well which he managed to go on the outside coming into turn 4 and take a few spots there as well so he was 10th by the end of the first lap and then that obviously became 8th by the time rossi and power had kind of dropped out of the mix so that that's that really you know, the calculated start there, not doing anything silly, basically the opposite of what he did at Portland in in the uh, maybe that's what maybe mentally that was what uh, was in the back of his mind with him hanging back a little bit. But uh, there's a great helicopter shot that you can watch at the start of the race and you can pick out Grosjean, obviously, because of the purple car. It's really easy to see. Um And that was great. Obviously, don't need to talk about the overtake so much because people will have seen them on, on social media. Um yeah, he passed Hinchcliffe, Chilton, and Rayhorn first lap in those ones that we've just outlined. He passed Askew on lap seven, O'Ward on lap ten, Dixon on the thirty into the corkscrew, which, as I said earlier, should be we should be lobbying for that. Just, there's just no way that you expect Scott Dixon to get overtaken at the corkscrew by anyone. Never mind, Roman Roma, Grosjean, rookie, IndyCar rookie. That that was just that was unreal, really, to be honest. And then he passed McLaughlin, McLaughlin on thirty six. Hunt, uh, Hunter A and McLaughlin on the same lap on fifty one. And then his late spell on the fresh tyres, he passed Pagano, Ericsson and O'Ward in consecutive laps. We already talked about the O'Ward pass at turn four and then passed Ray Hall on 84 to set up the sort of last stint of the race. And then that's where things kind of fell off a little bit because he he erased the almost 12 second gap down to three seconds to, to Alex Pillow. Obviously hunted him down um, for, for second, but then made contact with Jimmy Johnson, which... That was a bit more Portland esque I think, from how far back he came for for that one. He just got a little bit cocky, I think, with some of the moves that he'd been making, and just took a bit too much a uh, bigger bite of that he's apple. Had, he had his
1: mind made. He had his mind made up that he was going for that. I
0: think. He, I second. think he made the decision at turn two that he was going to dive down. Jimmy <laughs> Johnson to inside of the course. He came from so far back, but yeah, I thought Jimmy Johnson took that like an absolute pro in terms of what he was saying after the race and kind of, you know, was really good about that. I thought. I thought Roman was very lucky to escape without getting a penalty, but you know, theoretically it didn't really affect anyone's race in the end, but Jimmy did say that he felt like he had potential that he could, could have moved forward maybe, but I felt like that was Jimmy, maybe a little bit of posturing on Jimmy's behalf that maybe that was going to be a bit difficult for him to move any further forward than he were, than he was. Um, And yeah, I guess the strategy was really cool. I thought uh, I saved that bit for last because I think it's one of the coolest elements of the race because Mm for what I feel like is the first time this was almost a unilateral Roman Grosjean decision to change strategy mid-race, which I don't think many people saw because obviously you've not got the radio. So, you know, the, the initial plan was to start on the Reds and ditch them really early on to, to switch to the Blacks, which is what New Garden did basically, that that strategy. But Roman right. was really happy on the Reds to start with and said, even though they expected the Reds to be their worst tyre, it turned out it was obviously their best. And that's why they set, saved the, the fresh set for the end. But Roman said, you know, I really like these tyres. Let's go long, long in the middle. And then you know, short at the end. And he, he kind of explained that in the in the post-race press conference as well. But just a, a, another sign, I think, Jay, I think we've done quite a good job of kind of step-by-step step explaining the things that Roman's had to deal with this year, gradually, whether it's, you know, restarts, pit in, pit out, pit stops, all the things that are a little bit different in IndyCar to what they would be in F1. And I feel like we're we'll getting to the stage now where he's starting to, you know, he's starting to impact strategy decisions himself. He started to impact the setup of the car. He knows exactly what the car is doing now and understands it a lot more. And just generally has a, a deeper understanding of the championship that he's in. And I think that's why we're seeing more consistently good performances from him, you know, over the past few races.
1: Yeah. And I think just to mention a bit about his driving, the strategy over the course of the race was interesting. It, it was, it surprised me a little bit that there weren't more takers on a four-stop like Newgarden was. The the main reason why I think there wasn't was because, you're going to go for long periods of the race where you're a lap down just because you've made an extra stop. But with, I think in hindsight, looking back at it and you can look at just how it kind of played out for new garden, but basically the tires like fell off a cliff after call it 12 laps, no matter breads and blacks or whatever. And, and at that point, you're losing seconds per lap relative to a, being on a fresher set. At Laguna, the the pit, the basically the pit in, because of how the pit out, how tight the pit out is, like not the actual pit out out of the pit lane, but as it merges, like there's a the slowest corner on any IndyCar track over the course of the year is like the end of pit out. That's like off camber and downhill. You saw Marcus Erickson like drop a couple of wheels there. It's really easy to do going down on cold tires. Because of all that, the time loss to pit is like, 40 seconds or something. So that's the, that is the reason that you didn't see more of that, I think. But, um, in seeing how incredible the tire tag was, you can also see why it sort of worked for Newgarden over the course of the race. Like somebody who's, if they can get in a little bit of clean air, can just rip a bunch of laps, not have to fuel save, not have to save tires at all. Um, you know, they were able to sort of match with that. That was kind of interesting to watch over the course of, um, you know, how the whole thing played out, but, to me, what was really interesting to watch with Romon was really just the creativity that he showcased in the car, and and you see that a little bit in terms of where he was making passes. That's that for sure was was a piece of that. But even just in terms of what he was doing with the car itself, it actually it reminded me of how you drive the car on ovals sometimes, which is that he almost, especially as the tires would start to go off, it was like, he just wasn't, it, He it It almost looked to me like he wasn't going to allow himself to turn the steering wheel more than a certain amount through the corner. Basically. Like he just knew that if he keeps steering the car, that it's going to go to understeer and then he's going to get like this big understeer to oversteer swap and the cars, you know, you're burning tires off and, and that just, that's a compounding threat over the course of, corner to corner, or lap to lap. So, you know, a good example of it was particularly in turn three, you saw a number of guys doing this kind of missing the apex in turn three throughout the race. Um, but watching Roma through like his last stint, even when the tires were good, there was a lot of follow cams where you're watching him behind another driver and he was going through three, he was going through five, six he was getting to the apex but the last corner turn 11 coming onto the front straightaway that it was basically like he was kind of bending in late he'd get to a certain point with the steering angle and just not force the car to get down to the apex from there let it roll this kind of slightly wider but longer arc through the center of the corner and then he would just get it squared up and get this great like punch off the corner it was almost like he was driving a half wet line through the middle of the corner, basically like just really squaring everything off. And it struck me that, you know, sometimes you do that on the oval, you just move up half a lane because by, by having to add that extra steering in the center of the corner, it just like binds the car up in a way that it can't maintain momentum and kind of continue to carve and keep the front tire underneath it. Like he had, it's, it looked like he had such a keen sense for the slip angle that the front tire was willing to like deal with basically. And completely like, and I don't, I don't know that it's even purposeful at that point that he's, that he's thinking, okay, I'm just going to drive the car out in the middle of the track in the middle of the corner. I think it's probably more just a feel thing, corner to corner, lap to lap, like, okay, it's not quite going to make the apex. So I'm just not going to force it to do that. Um, and it was really interesting to watch because I found uh, over the course of this year, at uh, particularly Road America, the Indy GP at those circuits where you've got a lot of heavy braking zones. Um, I, you've, I've seen the same thing from him on the brakes and that that applies to his passes up in the corkscrew. Like, I would love to see what his brake trace looks like, just because it's such a different dynamic, the way that he places the car with such great confidence still heavy on the brakes late into the corner it's i mean i can tell you from being in the car you're at an incredibly high risk in those situations of just locking fronts up and blowing past corners or ending up in the side pod of the car you're trying to get by he has such confidence at that stage of the corner that he's still going to get it wowed up and is frankly extracting like an incredible braking power like deceleration power still from the car at a place where typically like the style of a lot of drivers these days is to be almost like off the brake as you're bending in, you know, to get the, to settle the car, get the nose up, like let the car roll through that first part of the corner. So, um, just super interesting to watch. He's doing some things that I I think are, are sort of, i I'm, I would, uh, I would guess that there are other IndyCar drivers up at the front of the pack that are watching some replays of Roman Grosjean wondering the same thing, like how, what exactly is he doing there? Because it's, he's definitely found something that he's very comfortable with um, and, and is working that, that not many other drivers are, are able to do.
0: Well, do you know what, JR? He's going to have three teammates next year, potentially because we've not had an official announcement, but we think he's going to have three teammates next year. Andretti, who are going to see that steering trace. Two of them are going to be people who are capable of winning the championship. So maybe they'll uh, maybe they'll talk some shop there and trade some secrets. But yeah, I'm getting quite excited now because I think we have seen some inconsistency from Roman over the course of the the year. But as far as I'm concerned, he's a rookie learning the championship, and across every race weekend, we've seen him learn something new, or perfect something, or just generally improve at something. And I think that's always a sign of a driver who's you know really going places because if you could, it's like Colton Herta, it just seems like every year he adds something little, whether it's, you know, he gets better at fuel saving or he's better on the tires or it becomes more consistent or whatever it might be. You know, it seems like he's learning something all the time and and those kind of drivers are always going to be a threat for championships and are always going to keep getting better. And even at, you know, not that Roman's old, but even at his age at this part of his career, he's still willing to learn and still showing signs that he is learning and growing as a driver, which is uh, fantastic. Based on that, JR, do you see him as being, you know, immediately ready to fight for the championship next year if this Andretti deal does supposedly come off?
1: I guess I, I could I could certainly see Andretti being in a bit of a Ganassi scenario from this year, next year, with Colton, Alex, and Romant Like, those are all guys that, with the right mindset, can learn from each other. Uh, you'll have Romant coming in with maybe a little bit of a different perspective and a different point of view on how things are doing. You know, we anticipate engineering to follow him there um you know that seems to be sort of the consensus within the paddock um you know so they're they're going to come in with a bit of a package deal of knowing what they did really well at certain places this year being able to compare and contrast that against what appears to be working equally as well for colton herder and alexander rossi i'll touch on the alexander rossi thing just really quick just because we mentioned it earlier which is he, he was in like the exactly wrong place at the wrong time in terms of just how his front wheel aligned with Colton Herta's rear wheel. Like basically what happened, what, because we ended up realizing afterwards that nothing was broken. Like it, like it kind of appeared as though it might've happened on the, on the telecast. Like they were talking about a toe link or whatever. Um, but I actually had this happen at the Indy 500, like five years ago coming out of turn four. I was coming up on the rear quarter of elio Neves as he was passing another car this was probably 20 2012 or 2013 so it was a number of years ago um and that basically he popped out like right before we got to the attenuator right as i was pulling out and he so his left rear hit the front like in the center in terms of the center line of the wheel the front of my right front and it just instantly turns the car. Like it, it bonks the front of the front wheel so that it just turns momentarily. Um, in that situation, I had to like fire it into the pit lane at like 200 miles an hour. So thankfully I didn't crash like, like Alex ended up doing, but it's just this really bizarre situation that only happens, you know, like once in a blue moon to anybody ever. Cause it, it has to be, (laughs) there's like a, four inch window where this is going to happen in that particular way but i felt really bad for alex in that scenario because this was a, this was obviously another event after sticking it on the podium in portland that um you know he was he was well equipped at least to have a good run um i think between the lot of them you can imagine these guys being quite the powerhouse in terms of where they go there's we saw some sort of weak points from Andretti this year. It seemed like as a team, they were never particularly consistent, but, um, from a driver and and engineering lineup, um, they'll have some firepower to throw at this whole thing. So I think in any situation like that, it depends a little bit on how well everybody gets along and how well, you know, they can work together as a group. But, um, I mean, if they can manage to figure these things out, um, you know, the sky's the limit for them. I think that they're all potentially championship contenders.
0: And, and just to add to that, the way the relationship with Maya Shank Racing works is that obviously all the drivers and engineers are in the same room. So if the rumours that we're expecting Simon Pagino to join Maya Shank Racing for next year, they've already signed Helio Cachenevas. That's that's Pagino, Cachenevas, Grosjean, Rossi, Herta, all in the same engineering room with the same engineers putting heads together. So whoever allowed that to happen, um, it, you know, that's a... Uh, an unwise move if you ask me on and how that's played out but yeah that's one of those things this is the silly season and silly things can happen we should probably cover off a few bits of news from the weekend uh Takuma Sato appears to be on the way to Delcoim Racing we were discussing uh, that a little bit on the last podcast um, about what might happen with Delcoim Racing uh, which is obviously paving the way for what we expect to be Jack Harvey joining Raul letterman Lalligan. Elsewhere in the silly season, uh, ex and F1 driver Stoffel Vandoorne was in the paddock over the weekend. Did you bump into him, JR? Did you? Uh, did you tell me about the podcast? <laughs> that was the first
1: thing I said. Actually, I was like, "Hey, I thought i um, have never be met before, but you should listen to this podcast <laughs> that we do." Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't see him. I didn't know that he was there until after I had left. But uh, not a surprise to me that that some guys like that are are cruising around after seeing uh, after seeing Roman this year.
0: I think everyone got a bit excited about that, but he does have a twenty two. Uh, deal with Mercedes for Formula E so they're not pulling out of Formula E until the end of 22 or however the Formula E seasons work these days Um, but yeah he won't be driving full-time in IndyCar basically next year but there's a good chance he could come over and do a few races might that be an opportunity to take the McLaren third car that we're expecting to see in 2023 out for a spin in a few races could be but he was also talking to a few other teams while he was out in the paddock as well so we'll have to watch the space a little bit with that one and see how that kind of uh, plays out over the next few weeks and months. Speaking of next year, IndyCar released its calendar before Laguna Seca and I guess we knew about the kind of February move to St. Pete a little bit last week because of some council meetings and things that happened so that wasn't too much of a surprise. Texas moving to March has um, been rumoured for a little while that was a bit of a one that the teams and drivers who race in IMSA won't be particularly happy about because it means a clash of weekends with the 12 Hours of Sebring which is obviously one of the biggest sports car events in, in the States and the, the teams and drivers there will be have to have to be flying back and to between um, between Sebring and Texas to, to get that done, which has understandably caused a, a little bit of upset there. But one of those things where when you've got calendars like this emerging, it's quite difficult to keep everybody happy. So sometimes there are these clashes that you can't really help. Detroit, people will be interested now, I think, drops to a single header instead of a, a double header. And uh, Laguna Seca will end the season um, as it did back in 2019. You can view the calendar on therace.com if you want to. JR, we just mentioned Long Beach, which will finish the season last year. Kind of a pseudo-home race for you, I guess, in in many ways. Had some good finishes there, two top fives in 20 2012 and 13, or would that be 2011 and yeah, 2012? No, that's right. Yeah, 2012 and 2013. Um yeah. I guess what should people know about long beach in terms of attacking that from a driver's point of view, what are going to be some of the challenges that, that the drivers are going to be facing there?
1: Yeah. Long beach is just, it's an awesome track. It's an awesome event. Uh, everybody loves being there. Uh, it's cool for it to be the last, the final race of the season. We're used to it being earlier in the season, but um, you know, it, the weather will be good. The weather looks good for this upcoming weekend. We can kind of see far enough down the road here to, to see that ahead of time. Um, know as far as the track goes it's not a place where you have you know crazy tired egg it's pretty abrasive uh as far as street circuits go it's definitely a place where you can really feel the grip in the car so that makes it a lot of fun it's bumpy but you can feel a lot of you know you can really get a sense of what the car is capable of doing you can push the cars really hard um always a bit of there's, there's always some uh sort of compromises that you're making from the setup perspective but Iconic places on the track, right? Turn one, long run down into turn one. So the starts and restarts are always hectic through the fountain. So it gets super congested through there at the beginning of the race. Um, You know, you'll often see some kind of late dives trying to be super opportunistic to fill little gaps. You'll even see that occasionally, particularly on restarts going into the hairpin, sort of a gentleman's agreement that you don't do it, but inevitably at some point during the race, cough, cough, Marco Andretti um somebody always jams it in there and and kind of like gets everybody all screwed up through the the final corner coming to the coming to the green um but just a a really fun circuit a place where you get to see the cars that see the cars work very low margin for error a couple of relatively high speed corners on the track as far as street circuits go so you know we've seen the Penske cars and the Andretti cars, in particular, have been quite good there over the years. Scott Dixon has had a great run at this at uh, at Long Beach. Um, you know, it's been on the schedule for long enough that a number of the drivers in the paddock have had quite a bit of experience there. So, I'm kind of I kind of look at just based on the track record. I look at uh, Power and Newgarden and Herda and Rossi to be guys that I would expect to be up at the front. But Pato has been good in these kinds of situation situations, particularly in qualifying. Um, you know, Dixon is, you know, Dixon, frankly, as far as I'm concerned, has shown a, 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 a marked improvement from last year in qualifying just overall. Um, so he hasn't been sitting that sticking the thing on the pole as many times as I think he would have liked to. I think he he's, he's made mention of the fact that, um, you know, he's had a couple slip away, but, um, it's going to be tight up at the top and that's going to be a lot of fun to watch for a final event. What you on the spot, JR, who's going to win the championship? I think at this point, my money's on pillow. Uh, I just, I, he's been, he's been too good too consistently. He hasn't been making errors as a team. I, you know, I, you can't, you you can't expect for there to be anything that goes horribly sideways for them. And every time they've been in a stressful position this year, they've bounced back. So I, I like his attitude. He seems very like just in the moment, Um, that's what you want from your guy who's leading the championship at the end of the year. You don't want him feeling the burden of that pressure, particularly at a new team. we, We talked about this after the first race at Barber that he, you could, you could, you could join Chip Ganassi racing and feel like you have all the expectations of the world on you. And it was clear that his perspective was just like, no, I'm stoked that I'm driving for one of the best teams. And so I think that that's carried through basically for the entire year. I feel like that's, that's still how he sounds and how he feels when you, when you listen to him talk. And so, um, you know, he's my pick. It's not to say that I, I think the other two guys can't do it, but, um, you know, Alex is, Alex is definitely in the catbird seat at this point.
0: I, I personally think there's been a bit of a psychological thing for Alex Pillow in the sense that from the very first Laguna Taker test right before the season started, the times he was putting in there, he knew how fast he was and everybody else knew in the team how fast he was. And from that point on, you know, he wasn't the, the young guy coming in who was going to have to kind of, you know, play second fiddle or anything like that. You know, they knew he was going to be there or thereabouts come the season start i think that's been a big part of his you know success this year but i also think and this race might be a good point to 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 bring this up that the the strategy from that team has been pretty much fantastic all year and as you mentioned you were surprised a few more people didn't go for the new garden strategy polo and that team could have quite easily followed new garden instead of herter in that situation because they're racing new garden in the championship not herter to win the race so they if you know they could have been you know, kind of, let's not say duped, because at that point, it looked like that strategy could work. And uh, it sort of did for Newgarden, didn't it really? in in a way, it did kind of do a little bit of what he was trying to do. It didn't win him the race, but it did move him forward quite significantly. And I think at that point, it could have been very easy for, for Polo to say, right, we're going to go with that strategy because we're, you know, Newgarden's one of the championship contenders. Obviously, o, o Ward is in the mix at, at that point, but quite a few positions back. And, you know, there was, there, was, there was a lot of decisions they could have made there. And I just thought that was a good Kind of example that race of of where that team's at and their kind of assured decision making that has been a big part of of how that season's played out. So it's been a fantastic year of IndyCar action, and the next time we speak to you, it will be with an IndyCar champion crowned, either Alex pelo Pat O'Ward, or Joseph Newgarden. I think it's going to be Palou, just just in case O'Ward wins and makes Hildebrand look silly. I'm gonna I'm gonna side <laughs> so, I'm gonna side with you as well and go with Palou so that we both look right. silly.
1: We both look like idiots.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and make sure you're checking out the race, the hyphenrace.com, for all the content that's coming up before this weekend. We've got some quirky and some kind of expected features. There'll be a mixture of both. There'll be some things that you're probably not expecting and some things that you probably will be expecting. So make sure you go and check those out. And we look forward to welcoming you back to the Race IndyCar podcast next week. <laughs>